The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Good morning. It's great to be here with you guys this morning. For those of you who do not know me, who have not met me, it's been a little while since I've preached here. My name is Chris Steinbarger. I'm an elder with the PCA, the denomination that we are a part of. I also am somebody who has been here for a few years. I work over at a place called Providence Academy. There I am a chaplain. I'm also the principal of the upper school, and it is wonderful to be with you this morning. While people are kind of filing in still, I wanted to take a moment just to kind of give a little public announcement, uh, encouragement, a reminder that this Tuesday uh, we have the opportunity to go and vote in the primaries. And, and although we do not look to a politician or a political system to be a savior, although we do not believe that that is where our hope should lie, we have the privilege and the blessing and the opportunity to live in a nation where, where we are able to voice our opinion on, on who ought to lead us. And, and as Christians, it is our responsibility to voice our opinion. So let me encourage you to pray about who, who ought you vote to vote for, and, and then do that. Um, that, that we should be involved in the government, in the process, in the land that God has placed us in. That is our, our responsibility to prayerfully consider who we ought to vote for, because I hope, I hope that whoever ends up being elected, that it is someone that God has chosen, and I know that that will be the case, and I hope that it will be someone who will bring Christ-like principles to our country. So, that little bit of encouragement. The pursuit of holiness, the discipline of grace, the practice of godliness, the joy of fearing God, respectable sins. For those of you who don't recognize these, these are titles, book titles, written by a longtime Navigator staff and also PCA ruling elder, Jerry Bridges. If you find yourself at a Christian bookstore, you will probably find these books, of which millions have been sold, sitting somewhere, featured in some way, because Jerry Bridges passed away last month. He went to be with the Lord. What sort of man, what sort of person writes books with titles such as The Discipline of Grace or the joy of fearing God. Does that sound like someone that you would want to hang out with, spend time with in your living room? How, how about the pursuit of holiness or the practice of godliness? Does that sound relaxing or exhausting? And then there's respectable sins. Uh-oh, exactly what I need to feel convicted over the things that I have become comfortable with. What sort of man writes books like these? 
I had the opportunity to meet Jerry Bridges when I was a 20-something recent college grad. And from the titles of his books, you might expect that he was a rigid authoritarian of a man who exudes confidence and conviction. But instead, Jerry was small in stature, he was gracious, and he was kind. Although he was nationally known, he was unassuming and offered me, an overly confident 22-year-old, his undistracted, genuine interest. You know, after five minutes of interaction with this individual, I immediately knew that here was someone who I hoped that one day when I was in my 70s or 80s, that I too could be a man characterized by such godliness. Hundreds of years before Bridges wrote The Pursuit of Holiness, urging us towards obedience, the prophet and judge Samuel gave a, a similar exhortation to the people of God. He said, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. See, the message, it, it really hasn't changed because the struggle has not changed. You know this struggle. You, you know this challenge. How can I faithfully serve God when I so often turn away and pursue after other things? How can I faithfully serve God when I so frequently turn away and serve other things? All of us, whether you are a believer in Christ, whether you are exploring Christianity, or if you are a skeptic towards religion itself, understand the guilt that follows when you get it wrong. How do you respond to that guilt? Do you push it away, ignore it, only to fall into the same pattern again later? Do you swear that you will get it right next time, only to be disappointed when you mess up again? Or is there a third option? An option that embraces both discipline and grace. This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 12. If you have your Bible, I'd appreciate it if you open up to there. It's on page 233 of the Red Bible and 364 in the Children's Bible. And we're going to be looking and reading and hearing Samuel's final words to the people as judge before stepping aside for the new king. If you remember to a few weeks ago before Easter, we were looking at chapter 11 and we saw how Saul had defeated the Ammonites and all the people had rallied to him. And at the end of chapter 11, there was a sort of coronation ceremony where everyone recognized together that Saul was the king that they wanted. And here we have Samuel in his final address as judge. And we are going to hear three things in these final words. The first is that godliness acknowledges sin. The second, godliness 
obeys the Lord. And finally, godliness clings to grace. 1 Samuel chapter 12. It says, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made you a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked with you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you and his anointed, is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord, their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel.
And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this passage. Lord, we thank you for this look into the words of Samuel, Lord, for this exhortation, for this challenge to turn from sin, to obey you, and to cling to the grace that you offer. Would you teach us this morning? Amen. Godliness acknowledges sin. In verses 1 through 5, we see that Samuel is stepping down from his role as judge over Israel. He will continue to be a prophet in the land, and he will continue to function as a priest. But no longer will he be leading the people as judge because they now have a king. Before stepping away from his position, Samuel puts himself on trial before all of the people. He invites them to testify against him, to declare any abuses of power that he may have done, any corrupt dealings that he may be guilty of. And the people are given the opportunity to point out any sin that may be in his life related to his position as judge. And in response, the people declare that Samuel is innocent of any wrongdoing. Godliness acknowledges sin. Would you be willing to put yourself on trial? To invite others to point out your sin? If you are in a position of authority at work, in your household, within the community, or even within the church, how receptive are you to correction? It is hard. It is hard to say I was wrong. It is hard to hear the words, you were wrong. You know that. I know that. But if we are going to effectively lead, if we are going to effectively minister to others, we have to have the kind of humility that is open to correction. You see, Samuel is about to bring the hammer down on the people. He is about to tell them, their sin, and, and yet he knows that he is able to do this more effectively because he is the type of man that is willing to submit himself humbly to the rebuke of the people. 
they have nothing to say against him. But he still opens himself up to say, what, what have I done wrong? Have I sinned against you? What sort of person is able to invite that kind of criticism and critique? Who, who is it that is able to be that vulnerable? And that's a question that we're going to come back to later. Samuel asks and they respond. And in verse 7, he tells the people, now that they have finished putting him on trial, he, he asks them to stand. Because now Samuel is going to put them on trial. He recounts their history dating back to Egypt. As I read through the passage, you may have noticed that there is a particular pattern happening in this passage. It works a little bit like this. First, God rescued his people from Egypt, right? Jacob brought the people of God out of Egypt. They were being oppressed. They cried out to the Lord, and he brought them out, and he brought them into the promised land to dwell in it. Then in verse 9, Samuel says that they forgot the Lord their God. The people sinned by not remaining faithful to the Lord, so the Lord gave them over to Sisera and to the Philistines and to Moab. And then it says that the people cried out again. Verse 10, they say, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and we have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. They confessed that they had abandoned their God and they had done so for false gods. In response to that, the Lord again delivers them. He sends a deliverer in verse 11. And again, he rescues the people from their oppression. Yet again, in verse 12, the people were oppressed, this time by the Ammonites. And we can deduce from the pattern and also from having read it that the reason why was just like before. They had yet again forsook the Lord. They had sinned against him. Are you noticing the pattern? It's the cycle that Pastor Dan had presented to you when we first started 1 Samuel, the cycle that we see all throughout the book of Judges. See, first, the people, they, they turn away from God, the very God who had delivered them, who had rescued them, and, and they sin. Second, God sends someone to oppress them, to inflict them, to judge them for their sin. Third, they cry out to the Lord, they acknowledge their sin, and they repent. And lastly, God delivers them. He delivers them from their oppression. But then the, the cycle starts all over again. Have you ever felt like you were in a rut? You know that something is a bad idea. You know that it has never worked in the past. And yet, you find yourself doing it again. When my wife and I, when Jacqueline and I fight, um, we, we tend to follow a certain pattern. Um, maybe you have a, a similar pattern in the relationships in your life. Um, when she gets hurt, um, Jacqueline, she, she tends to withdraw. And, and when I get hurt, I tend to chase. And, and I'm guessing that many of you know how that goes. You see, I know that the most loving and most beneficial thing that I can do when our emotions run hot is to give Jacqueline some space so that she can process and to give myself some time so that I can get my head right and so that I can lovingly 
and graciously pursue her rather than dogmatically chase after. And yet, it seems like every time an argument rears its ugly head, I don't do what I know is more loving. I don't do what I know is good for us. I do exactly the thing that has never worked. Not once. It made no sense for Israel to worship Baal. A man-made idea. The thunder god. The god of rain. It made no sense. It made no sense for Israel to trust in a God who had never demonstrated any iota of power or delivered them from anything. If you're going to worship something, I mean, maybe, just maybe, you should actually worship the God that demonstrated his power by dropping ten earth-shattering plagues onto the most powerful nation in the world and delivered you from slavery. Just maybe. But they forgot the Lord, just like I forget and you forget. We are sinners, and that is the rut that we are in. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge our sin. Well, The people were oppressed by the Ammonites because of their sin. They had turned away from God. They had worshipped other things. They had not looked to him as Lord. And it is here in our passage in verse 12 that we actually see a break, a switch in the pattern. You see, previously when the people were oppressed, the first thing that they did was not cry out, Oh God, deliver us! No, the first thing that they said is, We have sinned. They recognized that they were in their current predicament because of their sin and that they needed to repent. And then they would ask God to deliver them. They would say, forgive us. Please save us. But this time, in verse 12, they don't say, we have sinned. They don't. Repent. They do not ask for forgiveness. No, instead they say, a king shall reign over us. They demand of God that he give them a king to rule over them just like the other nations. Instead of acknowledging their sin, they turned further away from God, rejecting him and doing wickedness, it says in verse 17. Instead of acknowledging their sin, they were falling deeper into sin. And they were in serious danger. And they didn't even realize it. Samuel comes and and he gets their attention. He does it by asking the Lord God to send a sign, to send thunder and rain. The text says that it was the time of the wheat harvest, which would have been um, later in, the, in, in May or June, it, it would have been the dry season, a time when rain was unusual. Not only would rain, heavy rain, been unusual at this time, but also 
a heavy rain would have damaged the crops, making the harvest less plentiful. The people were in danger because they were falling deeper and deeper into sin, and God was literally flashing a warning in the sky. You are living in sin. Judgment is coming. Are there any warning signs flashing in your life? You know, there are a lot of different ways that God will warn us. Maybe through a friend. It may be through his word. Maybe through just this conviction that you feel in your heart. There are many ways. Is he convicting you of anything right now? I encourage you to pray and to ask God to reveal to you the things in your life that are leading you away from the Lord. Godliness acknowledges sin. Secondly, godliness obeys. The people, as they recognize that they are in danger, that they finally, they see it, they have sinned against God. It took thunder and lightning, but they see it. And they ask Samuel to intercede on their behalf. And Samuel instructs them in verse 20. He says, serve the Lord with all your heart. Repeats himself in verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. I have discovered, um, now that I have a one-year-old son at home and a one-year-old niece that is often visiting, that for some reason, electronics act as like this super magnet for babies. I, I don't get it, but it is that way. In fact, the only thing that will draw James's attention more than a remote control, a phone, a stereo system, is food. Okay? So, so food and electronics, that's it. Man. You know, there are, there are a number of electronic devices and cords and things of that nature that James is not allowed to touch. In a corner over by the TV, there's this uh, power strip, and the power strip is plugged into the wall, and James will, sometimes he will crawl over to it, he'll look at it longingly, lovingly, with great curiosity, and he will decide I must grab this cord. And he will reach out his hand. And after he makes that decision, it is followed by a consisting and unwavering command. No. Do not touch that. As soon as James hears that command, he has a choice to make. He has a decision. Will he obey? Will he obey the word that he clearly understands? He gets it. Or will he ignore it? Really, this is a question of loves. What does he desire more? Does he desire more to please his father who is forbidding his current course of action? Or to touch that cable that is oh so enticing? Samuel tells the people that they need to follow the Lord, that they need to obey, 
that they need to serve him with all of their heart. You see, obedience is a choice. It's not always an easy choice, but it is a choice. Remember the book titles that I listed off in the beginning? Pursue holiness. Practice godliness. Discipline yourself to follow God. You know, because we are sinners, because I am a sinner, because you are a sinner, because my son is a sinner, we easily fall into these patterns of sin. And we need to make obedience a habit, a discipline, so that we will not forget the Lord, so that we will serve him faithfully. Now, for some of you, the idea that we ought to develop disciplines or habits to better obey God may seem disingenuous, maybe robotic, as if we were machines to be programmed and not people to relate to. Aristotle, a non-Christian philosopher, suggested that our habits are not only something that we do, but that they are actually part of what forms who we are. Although he didn't realize it, Aristotle was touching on who we are as God's creatures. See, we are hardwired to live and to act and to respond in certain ways, hardwired by God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, God says this. He, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God commands them to repeatedly look at, to say, to meditate on, to post his words. Why? Because our habits shape our hearts. Godliness obeys. Samuel tells the people, serve the Lord, obey him, follow him, do what he commands. But it is not enough. It is not enough to simply obey. See, because of the sin in our heart, habitual obedience will only get us so far. You see, James may learn not to touch the cord. He's doing much better with that, by the way. But unless in his heart he loves his father more than his curiosity, he will still touch the cord. He may wait until I'm not looking, but he will do it nonetheless. I guarantee it. That is why godliness clings to grace. God must have your heart. Samuel does not only say, serve the Lord. He says, we must serve him with all your heart. Jerry Bridges, who wrote things like 
discipline of grace, practice of godliness, pursuit of holiness, said this. He said, I think that the will is redirected, not just by deciding I'm going to redirect it, but by settling my affections on Christ, the love of God in Christ, the glory of God, the reality of eternal life. As I do that, then my will is going to be gradually moved in that direction of wanting to do the will of God rather than doing what my flesh desires. How do we change hearts? How do our affections become molded so that they move in the direction of God? Samuel tells the people in verse 22 that the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not forsake his people. As we looked at the the sin cycle that Samuel had laid out, we saw the repetitive nature of our sin. We saw how we often we can get stuck in that rut of returning to that thing that we know is not good for us and has never helped. And yet we also see in here the utter consistency of God's faithfulness. Although the people turn away from God, although over and over again they rebel, he never at any point says, that's it. No more deliverers for you. I'm done. He will not forsake his people. Even after they look to their empty deliverers for salvation, God will not forsake them. And we know that that is true. We know that God does not forsake his people. We know that he has not forsaken his people because he sent his son, his only son, to the cross. God will not forsake his people. Instead, he forsook his very son in our place. We just celebrated Good Friday and Easter. It was on the cross that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is for you and for me. God forsook his son because he will not forsake us. In the movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Lord of the Rings, um, there's a, a scene that's not in the books. I don't recall it being in the books, but it's in the movie. The end of the part where Frodo has realized that if he's going to complete his journey, he needs to go it alone. He's got this ring that he's going to destroy. He's going to bring it to Mordor, and, and it's just not working out with the others. And so he heads out to a boat into a lake, and he begins to sail out by himself. And Samwise Gamgee sees him heading off alone, and he goes 
chasing after him. He runs into the water. And as, as he goes deeper and deeper, you, you recognize he does not know how to swim. And he sinks under the water. And Frodo comes back, pulls him out, brings him into the boat. Sam says to him, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo. A promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. And Frodo's heart that was set on going it alone changes his mind. And Sam accompanies him the rest of the way. I think that they added this into the movie because it's difficult to portray in a movie what you can show in a book that, that there is nothing that Frodo could have done that would have caused Sam to forsake him. He never would have left, no matter what. And over the course of that tale, we see that friendship unite. They, they grow so close and intimate because Frodo knows Sam will not forsake him. God will not forsake you. That should change your heart. I asked earlier, if you remember, who, who could possibly be willing to invite others to point out their sin? Who, who could be that vulnerable? Only the person who knows that they are so loved that they cannot and will not be forsaken. Only the one who knows that forgiveness is waiting for those who repent. Only the person that understands that their security does not rest upon them being good enough, but that their security is grounded in the name of God. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could have a relationship here on earth where we knew they would not forsake us? If you knew that your husband or your wife would never forsake you, if you knew 100% for certain that your children would never forsake you, if you knew 100% that your friend, that your coworker, that you would never be forsaken, we cannot have that 100% kind of confidence with a human relationship. You have probably experienced the fact that you cannot have that kind of confidence, but we can be confident that there is one who will not forsake us. It is the Lord God. and He loves you. It should change our hearts. But, some of you may be wondering, if God says that he will never forsake his people, what, what do you do with the end of this passage? How, how can he threaten to sweep away the people and their king in verse 25 if they continue in their wickedness? Wait, what? I thought he, he wasn't going to forsake them, but I will sweep you away. Am I really secure? Am I really safe? The key is this. Anyone who truly recognizes the love of God and the hope of Christ, that person will not continue in their wickedness. 
they will not continue to pursue sin habitually. They will not. God's people cannot do this. You see, when somebody understands the love of Christ and somebody recognizes the love of God, their hearts are changed and they begin to hate their sin. If someone remains in unrepentant, habitual wickedness, habitual sin, that is evidence that they are not and never were truly a part of God's people. See, the gospel has never been clean yourself up and then God will love you. The gospel, the good news is what it says in verse 24. He says, consider what great things God has done for you. In other words, consider how much God loves you. Consider how Jesus Christ went to the cross for you to deliver you. And now, considering that, serve him faithfully. Brothers and sisters, it is true what Samuel declared. It is true what Jerry Bridges wrote. It is true now. Acknowledge your sin. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But don't only acknowledge your sin. Turn from it. Obey. Obey the Lord. 